Oh, thank you, Wesley, very much. And for all of you who have made plans and arranged your schedules so that you could be here and join us this morning, we are so thankful to have you here. It is a cold day today. It is a cold day today. And I've been told the bathrooms are warm, so if anybody needs to get up, if you're looking for the warm spot, apparently that is, that's where it is, I've been told. So if you need to get up and leave during, no, um, nobody will look at you funny. Um, in 1930, in Montgomery, Alabama, there was a park that was renovated. Oak Park, specifically, is the name. It was a turn-of-the-century location that people had, had used for many decades, but with the renovation, there was included a large swimming pool, there was a wading pool, also six clay tennis courts. They were all open until late into the evening so that people could enjoy. There were new flower beds that were placed, there were walkways, a new granite pavilion was, was built for, for dances and for parties, there were, there were meeting spaces, there were even some, some new parking spaces for the latest cars. A tiny zoo was there in Oak Park, and it, it featured there in its middle, there was a, a little island where the monkeys would live and, and play. There was a deer run, there was a bear pit, don't know why, but there was. The zoo later housed two World War II combat veterans, Julius Caesar and Flipper. They were carrier pigeons who had over 60 combat missions between them. It was a social gathering place for Montgomery citizens. It was a place to, to see and it was a place to be seen. If you were white. You see, like other similar places throughout the southern United States during this time, Oak Park was for white Montgomerians only. And then one fall day in 1957, Mark Gilmore, a young black man, took a shortcut. He was on his way home and he decided that he would cut through Oak Park in order to make it home quickly. He was promptly arrested for doing so because he had violated the city's segregation policy. Well, he challenged this policy in federal court. And it was ruled that Montgomery's whites-only park policy was unconstitutional. Because since the park was funded by taxpayer dollars, both white taxpayers and black taxpayers, it was ruled the park was to be available for all Montgomery citizens, regardless of race. However... Instead of Oak Park becoming a gathering place for all the people of Montgomery, it became a symbol of the impact of what journalist and author Amanda Ripley calls high conflict. High conflict is what happens when a contentious issue produces an us versus them and a right and wrong, a good versus evil type of feud. And you see, there was in... Montgomery and us versus them conflict. It was not only there, it existed across the United States. It was a high conflict that, that dated back hundreds of years. And so Montgomery closed Oak Park. If white people could not be there and swim without blacks, then no one would swim. In fact, the city of Montgomery closed all of its parks at that time. 
the pools were drained and they were filled with dirt. The animals were given away or sold. The playground equipment was removed. And even though Oak Park would reopen in 1965 as a scenic park, the pools have never been reopened. Friends, there is a long tendency deep inside of the fallen human spirit to exclude. We divide the world up into us versus them, right and wrong, good and evil. And these terms do not simply point out how that we are different. They mean that we end up taking a posture of, of rejection and withdrawal towards others. We refuse to offer any love or goodwill. We deliberately indulge in feelings of superiority at someone else's expense. Every society is made up of people who, who connect and, and who belong with one another. And yet within every society, there are also people who are left out and who are marginalized and rejected. There are all kinds of different messages that we share here in this building together. There are all kinds of different sermons that I have delivered through the years. This is one of those that I want to ask you up front to listen closely. That, that if you're one of those that sometimes, you know, you, you pull out your phone and you start scrolling through the Instagram feed just to kind of see what's going on, that you would, you would kindly set it aside. And that if you have come in here today with maybe a lot of other things perhaps on your mind and, and you're just not really focused, I would just pray that the Spirit of God would, would aid you in, in being able to be in tune with the things that are going to be shared today. Because since Cain and Abel, the human race has been engulfed in high conflict. It is witnessed in the backseat of crowded cars between quarreling siblings. I had no idea what I was getting into when Tanya and I decided, yeah, let's have a second child. You know, it sounded like a good thing. I'm an only child. I grew up having the backseat all to myself. I had it all to myself. I would lay out, man, stretch out. It was great. And then Tanya and I, we decided that, you know, how about, let's go for two. And then we had two and realized, you know, that those of you with three and four are just crazy. We, because all of a sudden our back seat became this war zone and, and there became an us versus them and lines were drawn down the middle and you can't go across this space and, and I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. We know high conflict is experienced when barriers go up between husbands and wives and Conversation gets shut down. You see it between co-workers, between denominations, between cultures, races, governments, countries. And we say we don't know why. We say we don't know why. The original facts and the different forces that led to all of our disputes have just kind of faded off into the background. The conflict itself just begins to take charge. That's what high conflict is. When you don't know why you're against someone else. We don't know why you're not getting along. You just are. Our brains begin to behave differently. We feel a certain level of our own superiority. And at the same time, we're confused by the other. We don't know why they're thinking the way that they are, why that they're doing the things that they're doing. We're against the other just, well, just because. Ripley says that high conflict is the invisible hand of our time. 
She also says that you don't address it in intuitively, meaning following through with just your natural response of, of how you think you should respond. She says, no, high conflict must be engaged counterintuitively. And what we're going to discover this morning is that means that we need to have an intentional faith. So please open up your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 15. Gospel of Matthew is the first book that's there in your New Testament. Find Matthew, flip over, find chapter 15. And it's here where you're going to find that there was a barrier, there was a distance, there was a wall that had been built up between a desperate Gentile woman and 12 self-important disciples. It had been around for as long as anyone could remember. And everyone figured that it would just last forever. I mean, this is how it had always been. But, but one day Jesus left the borders of Galilee and he traveled some 50 miles to the Gentile towns of Tyre and Sidon. These were commercially magnificent cities. They had been heavily influenced over the years by Greek culture. Each town was a proud historic center of Canaanite paganism. There were tombs of ancient kings and there were temples to various dignities and deities. You know, there, this was an area that no self-respecting Jewish rabbi would intentionally travel to. But Jesus had just been involved. I mean, he had just been involved in a confrontation with some Jewish leaders over what makes a person spiritually clean, and he needed a place that he could go and relax, and he also needed a place that he could go and make a point. So he leaves a region that is heavily influenced by Jewish orthodoxy, a region that Jewish leaders would say, this is a place that is clean. He travels to modern-day Lebanon, a place that even his closest disciples would describe as spiritually unclean. And there, beginning in verse 22, we're told that a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. You see, Jesus' acclaim, his popularity had risen to such a fever pitch that even those outside of Galilee were familiar with him. Words began to spread that this Jewish holy man had come with his disciples. And so a mother who was there in that area had decided to do something that was absolutely crazy. But I want you to pay special attention to the language that she uses in this exchange. She says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. We don't see this right away, but you need to understand this was covenant language. This woman is asking for a blessing, and she does so evoking the language of God's covenant people, the Jews. But she is not part of the covenant. She is not a Jew. She is a Canaanite. And in her religious economy, Jehovah God is just one of many potential deities. But if there is just a chance... If there is just a chance that this, that this man, Jesus, this holy man of the Jews, could help her little girl in some little way, then why not? Why not cross religious barriers? Why not push through ethnic barriers? Why not cross gender barriers? I mean, anything for a kid, right? Lord, Son of David, have mercy. And so Jesus' response to this risking mother, you might be surprised, but it was silence. He didn't respond. 
over his disciples, they responded. And they urged him to send her away. In fact, they said, you need to tell her to leave because she's bothering us with all this begging, all this asking for our help, all this asking that we do something for her child. This Gentile woman doesn't know her place, Jesus. You need to send her away. Friends, have you ever been disappointed by the response of spiritual leaders to your situation? The people that you thought would empathize only pushed you aside. Have you ever approached a faith community, maybe like this one, maybe this one, looking for healing, and yet you received more hurt? Hey, that's just the way things are, you were told. Not a whole lot we can do about that right now. The Greek text here gives us some insight into what's taking place. It says the woman was kradzo. Not crazy. Kradzo. It's a word that says that she was crying out with deep emotion. It says that she was wailing. She doesn't care about social mores. She's not concerned with polite decorum. Her daughter is in need, and she's going to go to any length to find help for her. And so Jesus looks at this woman who is crying out, who is bothering all the disciples that are just trying to go and, and find a place to get away. And Jesus looks at the woman and says, hey, I was only sent to help God's people. I was only sent to help the lost sheep of Israel. Lady, you know who I am. I'm a Jewish rabbi. That, that, that's what's embedded here in this comment. My God helps Jews. Because you, you know how it works, right, lady? You, you've got these different deities. You've got these different gods for different people and for different culture. And, and my God, well, my God's the Jewish God, and my God helps Jews, and that's who I have been sent for. And certainly his disciples were nodding in intuitive agreement. Yeah, that's the way to respond. That, that, that's what this woman need, needs to be reminded of. That's what she needs to hear. There is a place that, that, that we swim, and there is a place that you swim. But the text says the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Again, the Greek text is very helpful for us. It says she proskuneoed. She proskuneoed. It's, it, it's a word that means to kiss the ground. It's a word that, that is used to, to talk about worship. And so she comes before Jesus worshiping. With a heart that says, I don't know about all these other deities, but I'm going to give you my focus, and I'm going to give you my attention for the sake of my daughter. And she brazenly demanded that Jesus come to her aid. She actually uses a word here for help that was originally a military term. It's what's used to describe here in this story to convey the idea of responding to a critical and urgent need. It was the idea of a battle cry that would cause others to rush and give aid. So to all of you Gen X people, thunder, thunder, thundercats, ho! That's what's being said here. She says, Lord, help me. Respond. And so Jesus did. And if you've never seen this story before, He says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. <laughs> Ouch. 
Man, that's harsh. Right? But for sure, this was the prevailing sentiment held by those good Jewish leaders who Jesus had earlier challenged about what was clean and unclean. You see, in that earlier conversation that Jesus had had, this conversation of, about, all right, what, what makes me spiritually clean and what gets me close to God and what separates me from God, the, the question had come up because these leaders were upset because Jesus' disciples were not following their religious traditions. Specifically, they were not washing their hands before they ate. And look, they were not concerned with germs. They didn't know about them. They were concerned with Gentiles. And Mark in his gospel gives us some insight here. He talks about in chapter 7 how that the Pharisees and all the Jews would not eat unless they gave their hands a ceremonial washing. They held that according to the tradition of the elders. And so whenever they would come in from the marketplace, before they would eat, they would go and wash their hands. And it wasn't because they had been playing out in the dirt. It was because they might have touched something that was dirty. Or someone that was dirty. Or they might have touched something that had been touched by someone who was dirty. Not with grime, but with otherness. Mama, why do we wash our hands when we return from the marketplace? Well, sweetheart, that's just what we do. That's just the way that we do things. You see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day believed that their refusal to associate with people who did not live up to their religious standards, it was the highest proof of their devotion. God, you want to see how committed I am to you? Just watch who I exclude. Watch who it is that I stay away from. The righteous had to separate themselves, they believed, from the outcast. And so what happens is, the more spiritual then that you strive to be, well, the larger the category of outcasts become. And so people were excluded based on ethnicity and gender. They were excluded based on physical problems or practicing what were called despised trades. The outcasts were considered to be defiled and to associate them would defile the righteous. The righteous, they were swimming in this high conflict and they believed that the essence of spiritual maturity lay in excluding people. Do you know any of these type of swimmers? Do you know anybody swimming in these conflict waters? So the Jews avoided Gentiles because they believed them to be unclean and unholy and uncouth and, and unworthy of God's grace. Thus the disciples urging Jesus to just send this mother away because we know who she is and, and you know who she is and... and and I'm sorry, ladies, send her away also just because she's a woman. And this was exactly the reason why Jesus had earlier pointed out that it was not the external that made a person unclean, but it was the internal. It was exactly the reason he had tried to get the point across that moral cleanliness and uncleanliness was a heart issue. It wasn't a hand issue. And so Jesus, who was all clean, embraced those who his culture and society considered to be unclean. And he spoke with them, and he touched them, and he ate with them, and he loved them. And so friends, let's be reminded this weekend. A weekend that focuses our attention on the counterintuitive ideals and values shared by Martin Luther King Jr., 
Let's be reminded that the color of a person's skin should never make them an outcast. Let's be reminded that a person is not an outcast because they are born black or brown or red or white. The country of one's origin does not make a person an outcast. Neither does the language that a person speaks or the religion that they profess. A person is not an outcast because of their gender. It is the standards embraced and allowed by a society that determines who is in and who is out. And it is these very standards that Jesus begins to take aim at in this story. You see, Jesus is using all of these events to show his followers that you can be unclean and never go to the dirty areas of town. And that you can be in church and your heart can still be far from God. If you think that others can be marginalized. If you think that it is okay to separate. If you think that it's okay to have an us versus a them. And Jesus is also trying to get across the point that you can be considered an outcast by society. You can be considered an other, and yet you can still demonstrate great faith. And so go back to your text and see what the mother said. See how the mother responds to, to, to this conversation. I want you to see how she responds after the silence and, and after what is perceived to be and what looks to be Jesus being very disrespectful to her. She says, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She's saying, I, I know I'm not one of your God's followers. I know I don't worship like you guys do. I know I don't, I don't, I don't eat like you guys do. I, I know I don't have all the traditions that you guys have, but I am willing to take what your God's followers discard. Friends, God's grace is not limited by nationalities, by traditions, by languages, or religions. The only thing that limits God's grace is our willingness to receive it. And so Jesus' heart, man, his heart is full, and, and maybe his eyes were as well. And he turns and looks at this woman and expresses his admiration, and he says, oh, woman, you have great faith. And his word great comes from a word that we use when talking about mega malls and mega churches. Jesus says, man, this is a Gentile woman. This is someone who is an outsider. This is someone who... This is someone who has mega faith. And look, the disciples hear this. His followers who are wondering, why are we even here in this area? Why are we doing this? They hear this and their Jewish culture and their upbringing and their theology. Everything tells them that this woman should be shunned and she should be rejected. She should be ignored. She should be turned away. And why? Well, because that's just the way things are. And that's just the way we do things. She's a foreigner. She's a pagan. She's an enemy. And all that they are witnessing is hammering away at their sense of identity. And it's hammering away at their prejudices. And at their beliefs. And it's hammering away about their own superiority. And who God really loves. And friends, they are learning that God's kingdom has a different set of standards than the kingdoms of this world. 
And friends, I just wonder if perhaps, I just wonder if perhaps our own culture and our own upbringing and maybe in our own theology has formed within us an unquestioned spirit of exclusion where we naturally accept that some people are just inferior because of their color, because of their gender, because of their country of origin, and because they are different. That we have been told at different times and by different voices that it's okay to exclude them. Okay to overlook them. Okay to marginalize them. Okay to profile them. Okay to abuse them. Friends, that is not how the kingdom of God works. That's how the kingdoms of this world work. Why? We don't really know. We say there's just an us and there's a them and this is just the way it is and anyone who challenges the status quo should just be sent away because they're bothering us. But friends, Jesus is the king of a different kingdom. Can I get an oh yeah? And he teaches a different kingdom ethic. And he is clear. And he is consistent. There is no room for bigotry, sexism, or racism among the people of God. Can I get an oh yeah? A person's value is found not in their color, or in their gender, or in their sexuality, or in their nationality. A person's value is found in their humanity, being remarkably and wonderfully made by God. And access to God is not limited to a righteous few. Societies are going to always continue to drain pools and close parks. But as participants in God's kingdom, as followers of Jesus, as the recipients of unmerited grace, anytime we learn that a person or a group is being excluded or, or hurt, whether at work or at school or, or at church, then we must rally to the call for help. Anytime we learn that someone was ignored or, or left out or cheated or ridiculed or injured because of the color of their skin or because of the way they talked or because they, they went across this park or because they went here with that other person, we must condemn that behavior in the strongest possible way because the kingdom of God has no walls. There's no high conflict. There is no us versus them. There are no outcasts. There are only insiders. No imperfection. Only perfection. But guys, it's going to take more than Twitter rants and social media posts. We have to become active embracers. We've got to learn. We've got to listen to Jesus. We've got to, we've got to watch him. We've got to, we've got to be able to 
allow the Spirit of God to, to change us. And we must be willing to embrace the person who lives in a different part of town. The person who comes from a different part of the world. We must learn what it means to embrace the person who, yes, even lives differently than us. And the person that votes differently from us. And the people who believe differently than we do. The way it is, is not the way that it has to be. Because the result of an embrace, the result of the people of God recognizing the hurt that is around them, the result of the people of God being able to see the people who are around them, well, it results in healing. See, Matthew records that the woman's daughter was instantly healed. And friends, I believe when we act intentionally, instead of responding intuitively, instead of responding with, well, this is kind of how I've always been, and this is what I've always heard, and I don't know what mama would say, and I'm not for sure how grandpa would respond if I did this or if I said this. When we act intentionally instead of responding intuitively and we come together with people who are different from us, healing, healing comes. And it's not just limited to our own relationships, but it's extended to the next generation as well. And guys, moms, dads, our sons and daughters will be healed or injured because of our choices. Because of our choices. Because of how they see us responding. Because of what they read that we have written on social media. Because of how they see us reacting. Our sons and daughters will be healed or injured because of what we do. And so I want to close this morning by just asking that we commit to leaving them a legacy of intentional healing faith. A faith that says, I am willing to break down barriers. I am willing to tear down walls. I will go to whatever extent necessary. Even if it means my own embarrassment if I can find healing for another, if I can find acceptance for another, if I can allow another to know the precious grace of Jesus. May the generations that come after us be better. And may the generation that come after us Never close parks or fill up swimming pools. May the generation that comes after us show the world the kingdom of God. Father, I thank you for the healing that you have provided in this world and in this country over the years.
I'm thankful for those with an intentional faith who are willing to speak out over the status quo, who are willing to go beyond what others thought was appropriate. Speaking out and going beyond so that fellow countrymen, so that people around the world could be treated humanely. Father, it is my prayer this morning that your kingdom would continue. We continue to influence the kingdoms of this world. And that your followers would be the loudest voices. That your followers would be the ones that exhibit the greatest faith. That your kingdom would be an example of what your original intent was. That there would be no separations, there would be no us versus them, Father. There would only be your children covered by your grace. Father, for those times where we have had opportunities to speak, where we have had opportunities to, to make choices that would have brought healing into the lives of others but failed to do so, Father, I ask for your forgiveness and I ask for another opportunity. Father, open our eyes to those who are crying out. Open our ears, open our hearts to those who are just asking to be seen, asking to be heard, asking to be able to take part. And Father, I pray that your healing would pour out upon us all. That your healing would come to us this, this morning. That, that if there are barriers that are here between family members, that those walls would fall down. That if there is conflict between husband and wife, between siblings. Father, if there are problems right now between members within this church body or between members of this church body and, and, and other church bodies around this city, then Father, I pray that your healing would come, that there would be no high conflict, that we would not stand for any type of divisions within the body of Christ. And Father, I pray that your healing would come here in our society, that we would be your instruments of change, and Father, that there would be peace because your kingdom reigns. I'm grateful for this account in your word. I'm grateful for Jesus' teaching. I, I know what it is to be the disciples and to say, why don't you just send them away because that's just the way it is. Father, thank you today for reminding us. And so, Father, as a church family, may we commit to you to being a place of open arms, a people of open arms. And, Father, may we share a legacy with our children, a legacy of faith that will go beyond where we currently are into a new place, into a new world, into a new existence. 
Father, give them the strength and the courage as they go forward. Father, may they speak your truths. May they carry your love. And Father, may they have the faith of the Canaanite woman who would not be deterred. Father, we thank you for a moment like this where we might be together. And we ask again that your grace continue to pour out upon us. And Father, that we may be true children of yours. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And together we say, amen. Church, we're going to sing just for a few minutes to to help to center ourselves on the conversation that we have had today. And it's going to be a song that's going to focus on the change and the difference that the Lord has made in each one of us. And as we sing this song together, I would love for you to, to consider where you are right now in, in your relationship to God, but specifically in the way that you are carrying out God's kingdom ethic here in this city, in this, in this church. Think about what the Lord has done in you, and then you, why don't you be that same change in the life of someone else? Maybe you need to respond this morning because maybe you have been the one who has been excluding and you need to come before this church body for prayer. Maybe you need to go and speak to one of our elders in private just to have a conversation about some of the things that have been talked about today. Or maybe you would like to be baptized into Christ no matter where you came from, no matter what you look like, no matter your past, God wants to change your future. And we would love to celebrate with you today as you come to Jesus. Whatever your need might be, will you stand and give God praise?